the Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour Digest Edition. I'm Michael Apple. It's Friday, the 11th of March. This is the final episode of the show. We hope it's been enlightening, eye-opening, and entertaining. Catch all our interviews on the Biz News Radio channel on Spotify. Coming up here is a compilation of the most downloaded content of the week, followed by all the international business news you need to know from our partner at the Financial Times. From the team, thank you again for listening, downloading, and interacting with Biz News. Take care, and bye for now. Cormac Smith joins us now to help us make some, well, some sense of what's going on uh, with Russia, Ukraine, and in particular the South African angle. But Cormac, just just by way of background, I'm talking to you in the UK. Yes, I'm based in central London. I'm an Irishman, but I've lived in this great country for 34 years. And um, for nearly two decades of my time here, um, I worked for British government, both local and central government. And much of that or the recent uh, time has been spent in Ukraine. Well, yes, I spent two years in Ukraine as a British diplomat between 2016 and 2018. And I was effectively, I guess, I was I was loaned to the Ukrainian foreign minister as part of Britain's ongoing support for Ukraine in its journey to democratize and to deal with corruption and to, you know, Ukraine, like South Africa in many ways, is a very, very young state. You know, it's only 31 years old, 92% of the population having voted for independence from Russia in 1991 after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So like all new states, they deal with lots and lots of issues. Unfortunately, Ukraine has one more issue. It has the worst neighbor in the world who invaded Ukraine eight years ago with the illegal annexation of Crimea and further invaded Donbass in the east. And the reason they did that really goes to the heart of what is happening today. There was a popular revolution known as the uh, Revolution of Dignity or the Maidan Revolution, because it centered around Maidan Square in Kyiv, the capital. And that was in protest for a corrupt and autocratic president who had been democratically elected in 2010, but turned out to be very corrupt, very autocratic. And when the people clearly wanted to move to the West and towards democracy, decided pretty well on his own that um, he would not sign an association agreement with the European Union and would instead sign an um, agreement to um, form closer economic ties with the Russian Federation. The response to that back in 20, late 2013 was a student protest. The government at the time under Yanukovych sent out a special police force known as the Berkut, who no longer exist, and they brutally beat the students. I have heard um, stories of iron bars being used instead of their, in place of their normal batons. Somebody said to me in Ukraine, there's one thing you don't do, you don't touch our children. Many, many people told me that in the two years I was there. Within days, hundreds of thousands of people had taken to the streets of major cities, Kiev in particular, which was the heart of the revolution. That revolution lasted for over 100 days, 102 days, I think. In the end, Yanukovych tried bringing in what I believe were Russian special forces snipers who took up positions on the high rooftops and buildings around the square, and they murdered. They shot with sniper rifles over 100 who have gone into 
almost folklore as the Heavenly Hundred, and there's a there's a very moving wall commemorating them just be, or just off Maidan Square in um, um, in Kiev to this day, with a with every single person you know named and what they did and what age they were and so forth and on what particular day they were shot. That popular revolution effectively brought down the Yanukovych regime. Yanukovych fled to Russia, where he still lives in exile. The Ukrainians put a democratic government in its place. As we're talking in South Africa, and I I know there is sympathy for Russia in South Africa, it's important to note that the, the Russian myth, the Russian lie, false narrative that this was a Western-backed coup against a, um, a, you know, a democratically elected leader is completely false, and it put in place a Nazi regime backed by the states. It was a popular revolution. It was Europe's last great popular revolution, where the people, millions of the people, spontaneously took the streets. And in my time, I probably had thousands of conversations with both expats and more so Ukrainians who were actually there on the Maidan throughout the revolution and told me very visceral, heartfelt stories of what it was all about. But this was more than Putin could stomach. So Putin creates lies. And in Russia, we have to remember, we have a country, we have a regime that lies on an industrial scale. And they use those lies strategically as part of their hybrid war strategy. And that's a hybrid war, actually, that um, Russia has been waging against Ukraine for eight years, but also against the rest of the West. Uh, Hybrid war includes not just conventional violence, which has obviously been visited in just horrific degrees on the Ukrainian people at the moment, but cyber attacks, interference in elections, assassination attempts, and, you know, the vilest of um, propaganda spewed out from, uh, I use the word, vomitoriums like Orti, Russia Today, and Sputnik, and the thousands of poisonous little keyboard jockeys who the Russian state employ to uh, drip their poison all across the um, internet. And what we have to remember about these lies is, unlike the old Soviet Union, they do not form a coherent narrative. All they intend to do is to sow um, confusion and division and discord in in the West. It's a it's very much a divide, part of a divide and conquer strategy. Cormac, and why why do the Russian people tolerate this then? If it is such a concerted effort and so full of lies, do they just not know what's going on? Well, you know, I had this, I had a long conversation on only Saturday night with one of my closest friends in Ukraine, who is a very senior diplomat. We worked very closely in the two years that I was there. And, you know, I was, you know, he was saying that this is, this is not just Putin, this is a large part of the Russian people. And in fact, he sent me a statistic this morning that 69% of the Russian people support the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But... It's important to remember, just as just as Russia has a massive lying machine as part of its propaganda, as part of its hybrid war toolkit, it also has an iron grip on communication with its own people. Now, a number of things. I There was a big piece of research when I was out in Ukraine um, carried out by the in partnership by the Estonians and the Ukrainians that looked at how 
the West was depicted in Russian media. And one of the things that came out of this, apart from being fed a constant um, um, diet of false narratives and lies about how about how corrupt the West was, how the West was a threat to Russia, how the West was decadent, and everything everything bad that Russia was not Russia being good, apart from being fed that constant diet of lies, and I could, I could send you the research if you want to have a look at it. It estimated 95% of the Russian people get no news from outside the Russian Federation. And in Russia, the media, the media is controlled almost absolutely. At the time of this, 95% of broadcast media was controlled, not by the state, effectively by one man, because that is the absolute total and control that Putin has. Now, that was then. We've seen now even more draconian laws. In the last few days, we have seen the last liberal, if you like, radio station in um, Russia closed down. We have seen a new law rammed through the Duma only last Friday, whereas anybody who contradicts the state narrative faces up to 15 years in prison. They are not being told that they have um, that they have invaded Ukraine. They've been told it's a special military operation. The word invasion is not allowed to be used. They are being told if they if they get any pictures of bombed out schools and buildings. By the way, um, as of this morning, the Russians have bombed 215 schools in Ukraine, plus lots of hospitals and and other buildings. But if they see this, they are told that no, the Ukrainians are doing this themselves. They are told that Ukraine needs to be denazified, that it is a Nazi state. And obviously, with the history of the Soviet Union, the term, the, the Nazi term is particularly, is particularly toxic. Well, it's a Nazi state where the far right have never managed to gain more than 2% in a general election. Actually, you know what? I lied to you. In the 2019 general election, the far right grouped together in a coalition and they achieved 2%. 0.15% of the vote. They achieved no seats in the Rada, that is the Ukrainian parliament. Whereas on the other hand, Volodymyr Zelensky, this man who has emerged as the greatest leader on the world stage, I don't want a ride, I want ammo when the Americans offered to get him to safety. He is a Jew. He is a Jew of Russian origin who lost multiple family members in the Holocaust. At one time, after he came in, Ukraine was the only country outside the state of Israel to have a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister. And large numbers of the cabinet of ministers are also Jewish. And there have been surveys carried out when I was there in 2017, 2018, that actually showed that of all the former communist and Eastern European countries, Ukraine was the least anti-Semitic and the most welcoming to the Jewish tradition. Some Nazi state. But the good news is I think most of the world is beginning to catch on to the toxic lies that Russia tells. But to answer your question, it's not just the lies that the Russian people are fed and the fact that they don't get their news from anywhere else. And remember, television is hugely important in Russia because the poorer people of whom there are many and the older people only listen to television. So it is... It, it, it is a complete suppression of any of anything that comes from the outside, along with a diet a, um, a diet of of constant lies and false narratives that paints one particular picture. 
here's something that's very interesting. And it's, you know, things, there are signs that things will change no matter how much Putin tries to repress the Russian people. Russia came out a few days ago and they admitted, which was amazing in itself, that they have lost nearly 500 troops in the first 10 days of the invasion. And that was seen in the West as amazing that they would even admit that. According to the latest figures I have, according to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, and also now being reported in the New York Times, and various people saying Russia are taking huge losses. The estimate from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense being reported in the New York Times is they have lost 11,000 men in 11 days. Let's put that in context. That's 1,000 a day. In Afghanistan, when the Soviets went in for nine and a half years from 79 to 89, they lost 15,000 in nine and a half years, about four a day, between four and five a day. They're losing over 1,000 a day. In. They underestimated a number of things. They underestimated the massive support across the globe, with a few exceptions. And I think there's you know, questions to be answered in, in South Africa. And I think the South, actually, I think the good South African people really have the question to answer, you know, a people that fought against the iniquity and the evil of apartheid only a very short few years ago. And a young and a young country which still has its issues that it is grappling to deal with should have maybe a little bit more empathy and sympathy with the plight of Ukraine today. Cormac, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine? Clearly, you have many contacts there. You are well tuned in as well. On the one hand, it appeared as though Putin was expecting a blitzkrieg. On the other hand, the conscripts that we hear about, they certainly don't have the stomach for killing women and children. And also now under the impression that what should have been a very quick and clean victory and a welcoming population is is quite the opposite. But what is the feedback that you're getting on the ground? Lots and lots of stories of prisoners of war being taken, um, whole units sometimes surrendering, completely demoralized, badly led, badly fed, looting supermarkets because their their supply lines and their logistics are breaking down. But young kids basically saying they thought they were on a training exercise. Um, and the Ukrainians are being very smart from everything I can tell and from the, from the fact that I lived among them for two years and worked at the heart of their government and actually worked with five ministries, including the Ministry of Defense in my time there and the fact that I'm speaking to senior people on a daily basis. Yes, there's fog of war, and there may be, if they say 11,000, it might be only 9,000, or it might be 14,000, because there's fog of war. But these are their best estimates. But we're also hearing stories of prisoners of war who are young conscripts who have no stomach for the war. They are badly led. They, can't, they, they haven't been told what they're really doing. They're ringing their mothers, and they're, they're being given phones by their captors. Um, everything I've heard is they are being treated as prisoners of war under the under the Geneva Convention. The, the, there's just too many stories coming through for it not to be true of how some of these kids just didn't know where they were going. They don't have the stomach for the fight. So that's one thing. The other thing, so many people have said to me, this must be, I stopped counting after 50 interviews. And so many people have said to me, Cormac, are you surprised with, with how things have gone and the resistance? I said, no, not at all been telling anybody would listen 
that these were the toughest people I have ever come across in my life. Also, the warmest and the most welcoming were people that I fell in love with, apart from making friends for a life. But if you look at their history for the last 100 years and how they have been abused and how genocide has been inflicted on them more than once, the Holodomor in 1932 and 1933, where Stalin wiped out up to 10 million Ukrainians. And then by both the Nazis and the Bolsheviks during the Second World War, where they lost more, Ukraine lost more people than any other country on the globe. More than Russia, more than Japan, more than America, more than Britain, more than any other country. And that's often forgotten because we think of the sacrifice that the Soviet Union made. Well, Ukraine was the jewel in the crown of the Soviet Union. It was only one of 15 states, but it accounted for some 40% of industrial output. So two things to get back to really get back to this, two things for forget about the lies of denazification, forget about the lies that it's about Ukraine being a threat to Russia or joining NATO, and forget about the lies that they were carrying out genocide in um, Donbass against Russian speakers because there's no evidence for any of this, and it, it's just completely not true. Why, you know, Putin has a pathological hatred of the Ukrainian people because they dared to choose freedom and to choose democracy. So yes, he wants Ukraine back for the um, wealth that it entails, because he does want to put the old Soviet empire back together to a certain extent. And he has said the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Think of all the horrible things happened in the 20th century, and think what a ridiculous thing that is to say alone. But... The thing that he fears most and why this invasion is happening, he fears nothing more than a successful, democratic and free Ukraine on his doorstep. Because that will, you ask the question about the Russian people, no matter how much he tries to control the message and communication, he can't keep the truth out from the Russian people forever. And we know there are thousands being arrested now who are... Um, who are um, and peace protesters. What he fears is a free democratic Ukraine. And he has a pathological hatred for the Ukrainian people, which is why we use the term genocidal, because he has said Ukraine has no right to exist. And his foreign minister has said Ukraine has no right to sovereignty. Ukrainians continue to surprise everybody with their fierce resistance. But, but having lived amongst these people who you clearly admire, how do you see it all ending? I can't answer that question because there are smart, there are wiser and more experienced men and women in this field than me who can't answer that question. I'll make one prediction and then I'll make another few comments. My one prediction is Putin will not win and he will never have Ukraine. And I've made this prediction before, but my great fear, my great fear is how many tens of thousands, maybe more Ukrainians will have to die to keep their, to keep their freedom and to prevent this evil, psychopathic, criminal thug from having their country. I, I said in the very first days of the invasion that things clearly were not going his way, and my fear was that he would, that he would resort to far more indiscriminate, actually discriminate, because it's very deliberate, attacks. So, and indeed, that is exactly what he did, because that's how bullies behave when they're faced with somebody that stands up to them. Um, so, you know, the, um, if, you know, if we look at our history, you know, Russia has won wars by just throwing 
just endless resources into the meat grinder. And clearly he's willing to do that because he has no, just as he has no compunction in, 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 in murdering tens and thousands of innocent people in Syria or in Chechnya, he certainly has no compunction with murdering tens of thousands of innocent Ukrainians. Ukraine will continue to put up a fierce fight and will continue to take a huge toll on Russia. But I don't believe without our support and without the support of the West standing in to do more than we are already doing, I think it will end very, very badly for Ukraine in the short term. So it's very, very simple. We have been imposing sanctions. They're not enough. They're not enough. They're still not enough. We have been arming the Ukrainians, no one more so than the Brits. We led the charge before Christmas in getting them, in particular, these anti-tank weapons and so forth. They need more and they need it faster. They need air, they need air defense, and they need jets, which they're now being promised. But it's over a year, it's over a week since the EU promised that just they haven't got those jets yet. They need them now. But actually, that is the least. They also they need some form of a no-fly zone. And so far, NATO is saying it's a non-starter. Yeah, it's a, because this could lead to an escalation. There are other people calling for, well, a no-fly zone does not have to be NATO. It can be a group of non-aligned um, 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 countries under, under an EU, ma- under, sorry, a UN mandate under the duty to protect. So the, the laws and the structures are there and all of these things are being looked at. But we need to do more because this is not just a war on Ukraine. This will not stop with Ukraine. This is a war on a way of life. It's a war on democracy. And they will, he will continue if he gets away with it to move into other countries, be it Poland or the Baltic states. And the people in these countries are very nervous. And they have been for a long time. Just to close off so, with, if you were to talk to a South African who is dubious, who says, this is a partner of ours in BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, mm-hmm. China, South Africa. Although the B, Brazil, voted with the, the people who condemned the invasion, even though the other members mm-hmm. of BRICS didn't. What would your argument be to a, a man in the street in Johannesburg who at the moment is feeling, because of historical perhaps links and ties where the Soviet Union supported the, the liberation forces in this country, that, it's, uh, that, that Putin's the guy to back in all of this? How, how would you disabuse him of of that notion? I don't know whether I would be speaking to a man or a woman of faith, but um, hear me out. This is, and many people have said this, this is the, yes, there's been, you know, the, there's been horrible deeds and what I, you know, I refer to as evil. I believe in the existence of absolute evil in our world. And there have been there have been deeds of absolute evil carried out in countries across the world, including in South Africa, and still, as we know, but in terms of an absolute, in terms of an absolute black and white, in terms of an absolute war of between good and evil, we have not seen anything like what is happening in Ukraine today since 1939 to 1945, when that was something different about Nazism, when six million Jews were exterminated and everything else that that regime did. This is the first time since then that we have seen something as diabolical, 
contained within within one man and within one regime, the current Kremlin regime. And the way they are prosecuting this completely unjustified war against a peace-loving, democratic people, where to date 1.5 million Ukrainians have crossed the border into Europe as refugees. It's already been called the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. Three of them are friends of mine, the, the, the wife, daughter, the wife and the wife's daughter and her mother spent three days driving to get from Kiev to Lviv. They spoke to me yesterday. They were in Lviv. You know, for what it's worth, I said, look, I don't know where you're going. They don't know where they're going yet. I said, well, get to London. You've got a home in London. These are people that a few days ago, I mean, were running businesses and, 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 and you know, final year in university and had, and that's just, there are, we don't know how many hundreds or thousands of innocent people have been killed. They broke the ceasefire twice for people trying to get out of Mariupol. I mean, the, the behavior, they have used many, many weapons, which are cluster bombs and so forth, were banned under the Geneva Convention. I mean, this is, I could go on, but this is, this is black and white. There is no argument about this. This is pure, pure evil. So South Africa can either sit on the fence or be on the right side of history. There is no, there is no, there is no gray area in this. And I would appeal, I would appeal to the good people of South Africa, having gone through the huge trauma that your country went through with, and I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of apartheid in particular, which for me, and maybe not everybody listening will agree with me, but for me, apartheid was one of the greatest evils on the face of the earth when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s and my parents drilled this into me in Ireland and my school teachers drilled it into me in Ireland and so forth. It was an absolute evil that was perpetrated against the majority of the people of South Africa by a, by a minority. So having, having had that in your very recent past, and I know there are still many social ills in South Africa as a young country which, you know, struggles to... Develop. But having, having, having had that experience and that very, very visceral feeling of what freedom is really about, you know, where I live in the West, people talk about freedom. They don't know they're born. They don't know they're born. They talk about freedom of speech and this and Brexit is freedom and everything else. They don't know they're born. When I went to Ukraine, I met people that really knew what freedom was about because they knew what it was not to have freedom and they knew what it was to spend 100 years fighting and dying for freedom. It was very, very different. It was just, it was absolutely visceral. This is this is something which goes way beyond, goes way beyond domestic relations or trade relations or bricks or anything else. It's what side of the fence are you on? Are you right? Do you want to be right, or do you want to be wrong? Because there are very, very few questions, you know, in human life that are so monochromatic. They're black and white, it's right and wrong, it's good and evil. And what I see looking in from the outside and from what little research I've managed to do is South Africa is at best sitting on the fence at the moment. There is no sitting on the fence. Sit on the fence or be on the right side of history because sitting on the fence here, you're on the wrong side of history. Andre Salia from Treasury One. My goodness, this has been a time for the rest of us to tap into your wisdom, Andre, with what's going on in Eastern Europe and the RAND and how it affects our pockets. Maybe let's just start from the very beginning. This, this invasion by Russia into Ukraine has now been going on for 12 days. If you track back 
the impact on the South African rand. It was looking very strong ahead of this. And now, of course, it, it has almost predictably been impacted. Yes, uh, certainly. When I spoke to Justin two weeks ago uh, on the Monday, I mean, we knew about the possibility of, uh, of a Ukraine-Russian war. But at that stage, everybody was hoping that, you know, there would be still dialogue and it would not happen. It did happen. If we look at the value of the RAND at that stage, it was trading around the 1515 level. Uh, but at the same time, against the euro, it was trading around the 1715, 1715 level as well. Now, since then, uh, at that stage, uh, one needs to mention what happened to, to the dollar because the euro against the dollar was trading at levels of 1.13. It now trades at 1.0840, which is a 4% weaker euro. At the same time, the rand had actually strengthened against the euro by some 2.6%, uh, and only weakened against the dollar by about 1 1.5%, 1.6%. So the rand is done exceptionally well over this period, in the sense that it gained against some currencies, weakened against others. Uh, if you look at what happened to the ruble, for instance, you know, the devaluation or the weakening of the ruble against the dollar uh, is in the order of uh, 80% over this last 12 days. So massive moves uh, in the currency space, but also massive moves in the uh, commodity space. Gold, as we speak, uh, just before I came in for this discussion, was just briefly over the $2,000 an ounce again. It was there this morning, came down slightly, but it's there again. Uh, palladium and platinum uh, shooting out the lights. If you look at the palladium price since December to now, then you're speaking, and, and, and one should really sit down and hold onto your chairs on these figures, because it's trading around 70 to 75% higher. That's the jump in, 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 in that space. Uh, if you look at the price of coal, coal was briefly over 400. It might be even above that again today, uh, but over $400 a ton last week uh, from levels of 220, 230. So immense. And this is all because of the energy crisis. You look at the oil price, a 40% move in the last two weeks or so, you know, we can now discuss what's the impact of these things, but that's the kind of moves that we've seen. It's extraordinary when you put it into that kind of context. I was at the uh, in the lockup for the budget, what's it, a week ago, just over a week ago, and there the South African Treasury were getting um, somewhat concerned about being able to repeat in the next year, in the next fiscal year, the bonus that had been achieved through higher commodity prices. But from what you've unpacked for us, bizarrely, this war is doing South Africa's export earnings a, a heck of a lot of good. It does the export earnings a heck of a lot of good. The One of the problems that we might incur is, can you actually get the physical exports out and delivered to the other side? That is something that is still to be seen because if this war continues uh, it might have an impact on how do you get goods from point a to point b uh, 
and, and, and certainly if this continues, then the commodity boom that we're seeing uh, might continue because the demand will be there. Um, but as I say, the logistics might not be there. But certainly some benefit to the fiscus again on that front uh, going forward. I must honestly, honestly say that at this point in time, I'd rather not see the fiscus benefit uh, from from a windfall like that uh, and rather see a wall that dissipates and actually unwinds and we get back to a more peaceful situation because this is certainly not good for world economies uh, and, and Europe especially uh, if, if this continues. You made the point a moment ago that the South African rand has strengthened against the euro but not weakened too much against the US dollar. But just maybe starting with the US dollar and the euro as a beginning point, why would it be that the dollar would have strengthened so aggressively against the euro, beyond the obvious that this is happening in Europe? I think at the end of the day, this is happening in Europe, and that's exactly why the euro uh, is doing so badly, and also the pound is doing badly. It's a Europe, mostly a European war, um, and if this escalates and continues, it, it will be fought out in Europe and their economies will be impacted much more than anywhere else. Apart from that, if you also look at the exposure of Europe to Russia, uh, then the whole sanction thing will impact dramatically more on Europe than on the rest. Uh, just for instance, if you look at debt of Russian banks uh, to European banks, uh, the bulk of the debt lies into the uh, European banks. And that's why Europe is so badly suffering, or the euro is so badly suffering under this whole situation. And the sterling, pound sterling, you said that's also weakened. Why would the British uh, currency, given that they about as far as away as you could get if you happen to be in Europe from what's going on in Ukraine. Why would they also be under pressure? Well, I think they're very closely, uh, they're still very close to Europe. Uh, and even though there is and was a Brexit, uh, you know, those two, the European economy and the UK economy is still very, very closely interlinked. Uh, and, and the bulk of trade between the UK uh, still takes place with Europe. So that's why that would also impact so badly on the British pound. And the South African rand being relatively strong, is that more a question of benefiting from the commodities or just being far away from all the craziness? I think it helps that we're a little bit further away, firstly, but uh, most certainly at this point in time, the biggest benefit comes from uh, the commodity boom uh, that we're seeing because of this and the massive increase in, in commodity prices. Uh, I think what's being left a little bit on the back foot is the uh, negative impact that the dramatic increase of the oil price will also have on our trade balance because we are uh, oil remains one of our biggest imports uh, and hence the actual flow of money in terms of what you need to pay for oil will also increase massively. Uh, so, you know, the commodity boom and the oil price, uh, both impacting on the trade balance, the one positive, the other one negative. Uh, but certainly the outweighing of the commodity boom on that front, uh, assisting the rand. 
So how do you see this all playing out? Maybe you can give us a, a, a short-term and a long-term perspective on this. In other words, if, it, if the war continues for another 24 or another 12 days and, and then, uh, then it stops or, or at least there's, there's not the kind of um, television um, uh, visuals that we're seeing, or if the Ukrainian people give a, continue to, to, uh, to show such, such great defense and, and it continues grinding away almost indefinitely. What are those two scenarios looking like for you? If it continues for the next 10 to 12 days, I think the impact will, will be minimized uh, in the sense that uh, commodity prices and all these things will return to lower levels and, and more acceptable levels and the oil price will retreat to lower levels uh, and a crisis will be averted. If it continues longer and it goes on for weeks and months, uh, I think uh, it, it, it's a very, very negative picture for the world and in terms of what happens to world growth. Uh, I think it will be an extremely negative picture in terms of what happens to inflation rates throughout the world, also in South Africa, and the impact of what that can be have on interest rates uh, and, and the value of currencies. But moreover, the massive increase that one can expect then uh, and shortages that could start coming in in terms of certain foods, uh, the shortages of uh, energy, you know, oil could go even further, that could go much higher then, uh, fuel prices could go much higher, that will lead to massive inflation on food, uh, but you might actually physically see shortages. Uh, you will see an impact on our export side. Um, we are a great exporter of fruit, a uh, big exporter of fruit to Russia. Um, from what I've read, some 12% of our apple exports is, is, is going to Russia. You know, so industries throughout the world, companies throughout the world will be impacted by sanctions uh, and companies around the globe will start suffering. And as I say, shortages will come in. Uh, leading to impacts on uh, both price and, and, and inflation and ultimately interest rates. Uh, and that obviously to world growth. So a longer duration, a longer duration of this world, of this war, would have very, very negative impacts uh, and, and spells doom and gloom for consumers around the globe, uh, especially in Europe. And then I'm not even touching on what happens if the war escalates uh, to a bigger and wider war uh, that might span outside the borders of Russia and the, and the Ukraine. It's a, a very sobering picture that you've painted for us, Andre, but how are you advising Treasury One's clients who are exporting on the one hand and importing on the other? Well, my advice has always been, and it will always be, uh, to not follow an approach of trying to get the maximum rate or the minimum rate or whatever, you know, either being exporters or importers, but to manage your risk. Uh, what makes it extremely difficult now, uh, especially is if you're exposed to markets in Russia with imports and exports, is that your volumes uh, change substantially, uh, which could influence the amount of risk that you 
uh, are exposed to in terms of certain currencies. And you will have to find new markets. And though new, new markets might not, be pay, might not pay you in dollars, they might pay you in other currencies. So the composition of your uh, total exposure uh, looks massively differently or potentially differently uh, and also smaller. Uh, but from a solid proper risk management point of view is look at hedges that bodes well for you and that gives you certain scope and maneuverability in terms of levels uh, and be cautious of just trying to take advantage of a high exchange rate and then leading into a situation where you actually accept more risk than you really want on your books. So every individual company uh, needs to look at their own situation and discuss their own situation uh, with either us or their advisors uh, because there's not a one fit for all in this whole scenario. Uh, every company would be differently exposed uh, and one would have to analyze that risk and make sure that you steer through these volatile periods, try and get rid of some of the volatility but be able to steer through these volatile times uh, without affecting your bottom line too much. Sean Pesch of Ranmore Funds, uh, good to be talking with you, Sean. You've been guiding us really well on the whole NASPAS process risk. Uh, it started off some time ago, 2018, I think it was, where you pointed out that there were VIE structures that I think most shareholders in NASPAS had no clue what they meant. Um, and maybe a lot still don't. Let's just unpack that quickly before we go to the latest issue. So, Alec, what a VIE structure is, um, it stems from China's information security laws. And it means that the underlying security, the underlying assets can't be held by foreign shareholders. So what they end up being held, who they end up being held by are the CEOs, CIOs, etc. And all the foreign shareholder has is a contract which says that they can consolidate the results of the underlying business. So, you know, that hasn't been tested. It's apparently contravenes the Chinese law. It hasn't been tested in law, but it's never been a problem. And so investors let it lie. But um, as this whole Russian thing has shown us, you know, things can go badly awry and, and they can do so very quickly. Um, and so that was really the concern um, that I raised. And, and hopefully... Hopefully, um, China has witnessed what's going on and how strongly the foreign shareholders or foreign markets have responded to the invasion of Ukraine and, you know, are reassessing their ambitions regarding Taiwan and hopefully will be responsible shareholders and these won't be a problem. But you never know. And that was the risk. Yeah, by I waving liked. the flag, uh, you actually got us to reassess our position in NASPERS process in the business portfolio and we sold out at levels that are way over 50% higher than the current share price. So thank you very much on behalf of our community for, for pointing that out to us. But right, right now, Process NASPAS is back in the news. And this time, because of the investment it had in Mail.ru, uh, which has now morphed into a, a Russia's equivalent of Facebook. Just take us through exactly what's going on there. Process had an investor call yesterday, and they own 25.7% in um, a Russian social media company called VK. And they're writing down their investment. Now, if you look at Process's NAV on Process Investor Relations page, you'll see that that number of 769 tallies with what 
they have as VK in their net asset value. And, and I, they have no choice, really, because at the moment, VK has been suspended on the Russian market. It's not trading. Uh, hopefully, when things settle down, and I'm rather hopeful that we're at the tail end of this war. I know that's you know, uh, very different to the, the mainstream thinking out there, but no one can afford for this to go on for much longer. And so let's hope that in within a few days that they have lots of peace talks, they're ongoing. Let's hope that there's some sort of resolution. But but process has no choice, really, but to write it down. Um, its market cap, VK's market cap in 2020 was $6 billion. When it was suspended, it was only $204 million. Okay, So you can see the extent to which it had fallen. It also has debt of some net just under a billion dollars. And looking at the process statement and the fact that the number ties up, it doesn't suggest that that process had advanced or had any of that uh, VK debt, because that would be a problem. Um, and I think you've seen an exodus from Russia from just companies on a daily basis. And it's actually a bit of a concern for global markets because, you know, you've got these large multinationals that everybody owns in the portfolio that are priced for perfection. And, and now all of a sudden we've got an imperfect world. So the good news for process and NASPERS shareholders is that in terms of the NAV, it's not a big deal. If you look at process's NAV at the end of December, and it's obviously a little bit lower. Now, it's, it was 700 million out of 212 billion. So 0.3%. So that's the good news. Um, but hopefully, once VK, once the Moscow market opens again, VK uh, is listed and is trading again, you know, process can can execute a more, what's the word, you know, a, a, a execute a sale and recoup some of that. Um, so the worst case scenario that the NAV is hit by 0.3%. I mean, I don't think that's a big issue. The bigger issue is the Chinese assets. That's what I think the bigger issue is. You know, you've seen companies that are owned by Tencent, like C, which is down 75% since October last year. And uh, and no earnings, massive multiple, well, in fact, no earnings, massive market caps. Um, and that's a bit of a problem. So, you know, that I would argue is still a risk for investors, um, but but obviously less so which has then morphed into VK, which is uh, its share price, as you say, has gone down from market valuation of $6 billion to $200 million, which is an incredible decline. At the point of suspension. Uh, and then yeah. it was suspended. Is, was that all because of the war? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, all the Russian assets just collapsed in a heap because there was just rampant fear. People worried about what was going to happen with the... Uh, the suspension of securities, etc., and it was get me out at any price. Do you have an ability, if you take a contrarian view, and as you suggesting that the war might be towards the tail end, uh, if that were to happen, uh, to be able to buy into those Russian assets now? Is the Russian stock market even trading? No, the Russian market is not trading, Alec, and neither are the GDRs here in the London International Exchange, so you can't buy those. Um, the, there are a couple of Russian stocks which are listed in the US. Those are also suspended. So actually, probably the only way is via an ETF if you wanted to get. But I think most of those are suspended as well. So you actually you you can't uh, you can't get involved until these 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 suspensions are list, are you know are lifted. Um, which is a yeah. bit of a dilemma for a, a value investor like yourself because if you look at it on the on the one hand. Uh, you, you do try and avoid risk as much as possible. But on the other hand, the Russian assets, if there is to be a, a ceasefire anytime soon, would appear 
at the at what they were priced at before suspension to be incredibly cheap. Well, I mean, certainly so. And and in fact, we held some Russian assets in the fund and have been hurt by this because you know the the price that they marked in the fund is pretty much naught. Um, and uh, and so I know that that risk unfortunately has manifested. But you know these businesses are not bankrupt. I mean, Gazprom, uh, Gazprom, and, and and a number of the other Russian companies are paying uh, foreign debt holders and coupons and you know and, and right now. So so the company's not bankrupt. You look at the European gas price and the oil price. The question, the point is, is just the market price has just just been suspended, so you can't trade them. So that's the that's the important thing. So in the fullness of time, I'm sure the value will you know unlock, um, and uh, yeah. But but that is the thing. So that's the so the good news is those companies are not bankrupt, and I don't think VK you know it looks like it's expected was expected to earn some profit. There's probably less competition now with many of the other social media companies having left. Um, but I think from an international company perspective, process really had no choice but to exit. I mean, you've seen large companies like BP. I was a little surprised at their statement. I mean, BP have said, we are selling Rosneft assets. Now, when you announce to the world that you're selling and you've got a massive, and, and who they're selling to, there's only one buyer, and that is either Rosneft or the Russian government. And so they're going to determine the price. And so BP are going to take an absolute bath on this. I think it's over $20 billion. Um, what I think, would yeah, but but you understand that then the boardrooms of these international companies right now being associated with Russia is just terrible. And of course, it's not you know it's it's really Putin. It's not the Russian people. I mean, they're you know even this morning they're Russian authors and uh, coming out and saying that you know they are just embarrassed by their nation and rightly so. Uh, but it's it's embarrassed by the leadership. And I think we've got to be you know careful to. To tie everybody with yeah, the same well, we've been through that in South Africa, haven't we? Uh, in a through apartheid. Um, but Sean, just just before we move off Russia, and I'd I'd really like to just explore a little more on the process China issue with you. When you say that you think this could be at the tail end of the war, that's a very contrarian view. What makes you believe that? Well, you know, if you look at from Putin, this has not gone according to Putin's plan. That's the first thing. You've got protests in the street in, in Moscow and Petersburg on a scale they've never seen before. You know, it's a bit like, it reminds me of the defiance campaign back in South Africa. You know, you, when you have a few people trans breaking those crazy rules or you know, just horrific rules, they get arrested. But when you do it on mass, you can't arrest 145 million people. And so I, um, yeah, so, so that's the first thing. The, the shop supermarket shelves are bare. People can't withdraw cash. Um, oligarchs' plans to spend some off the coast of Saint-Tropez have been dashed. Uh, and so there's just pressure building. You know, the, the bodies, body bags are arriving back in Russia. Um, the, the, the reality is dawning on the Russian public as to what is going on. And Putin's making no progress. And at the same time, the Ukrainians are just being more and more emboldened. And I mean, the whole world is just in awe of Ukraine. Today is Friday, March 11th. And this is your FT News Briefing. The war in Ukraine means central bankers have to tread carefully as they confront soaring inflation. But first, the majority of refugees fleeing Ukraine are going to Poland. A reporter says the line of people crossing the border is unforgettable. But it's enormous. I mean, it's kilometers long. You have large numbers of Ukrainians gathering on the Polish side waiting to pick up their relatives. He'll tell us how polls are responding to the influx. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. 
Russia and Ukrainian foreign ministers met in Turkey yesterday for the most high-level talks since Russia invaded Ukraine two weeks ago. Russia rejected Ukraine's proposal for a ceasefire and humanitarian aid for the devastated port city of Mariupol. Fighting has continued in other parts of the country. Russia's attacks have shut down more than half of Ukraine's economy, and they've destroyed more than $100 billion in infrastructure assets. That's according to an advisor of Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky. Ukrainians, meanwhile, continue to flee. More than two million people have left so far. Nearly one and a half million have gone to Poland. Our correspondent James Schotter is in Poland and has been reporting on how Poles are receiving all these Ukrainian refugees. He joins me now. Hey, James. Hi. James, you're at Poland's eastern border where people are coming across. Uh, What does that look like? Well, I think... The border itself is pretty unforgettable. From the Polish side, you can't really see the full extent of the queue on the Ukrainian side, but it's enormous. I mean, it's kilometers long. You have large numbers of Ukrainians gathering on the Polish side, waiting to pick up their relatives. And then a huge sort of aid effort. It was all a bit chaotic, but, you know, a lot of people there turned up to deliver food, blankets, clothes. And so that stuck in my mind. I think also, I mean, I was at the central train station in Warsaw yesterday, and that is also pretty overrun. You know, there's a lot of people there trying to help, but there's also just a huge number of uh, refugees arriving. So there's people sleeping on the floor. There's, you know, abandoned children's toys in the in the train station, you know, sort of teddy bears lying on the floor. Carpets that are like a jigsaw puzzle that children can play with are just piled up in corners. And then there's people sleeping all over the place. So I think those are the sort of images that have really stuck in my head from what I've from what I've seen so far. And this is polls making all these donations and, and trying to help refugees. What did they tell you when you spoke to them? I think it's, you know, just sort of a basic reflex. They just see what's happening in Ukraine. They're appalled and they want to help. And I think, you know, obviously the fact during the 2015-2016 refugee crisis, it was pretty resistant to taking in refugees from the Middle East. But there's a long sort of common history between Poland and Ukraine. You know, what is now um, Western Ukraine was once Eastern Poland. So there's, these are communities that have you know, got hundreds of years of living alongside each other. So I think they have sort of close links and affinities with them. And I think, you know, they just wanted to help, basically. And I think they were appalled by the images that which, which I guess everyone is seeing, you know, of, the, of just the terrible destruction that's being wrought in Ukraine at the moment. Is there anyone you spoke to that kind of stands out in your head? There was one uh, student I spoke to who sort of stuck out in my mind because she sort of symbolized the sort of spontaneous nature of, of, of the Polish response. And she, you know, as soon as the war started, she wrote to various organizations saying she'd be prepared to you know, host a Ukrainian family at her house. And, you know, in preparation to, do, to doing that, she asked one of her friends if she could move in with her. Um, and her friend said yes. And then by the time uh, she was allocated a, a family uh, of refugees, her friend had also taken in a family of refugees. So she asked another friend if she could stay with her. And by the time that was all sorted, it turned out that she'd got a job at the border sort of fixing and translating for, for some journalists there. So she had to rush off to the border, which meant that the Ukrainian family that was going to move into her house, she never actually got to meet them. She just left the keys in the letterbox, left some instructions to them for how to move in. And 10 days later, she's still at the border. They're still at her flat. And I think, yeah, that's quite a good example of the way Poles have opened their hearts and their, and their homes to you know, people in need. But I guess the question is, you know, how long can Poles keep up the generosity it's it's got to be a financial hit to Polish households. 
Yeah, I mean that's the I mean that's the really big question. Is it just and and no one knows the answer because no one knows how long the war is going to last. I mean it's 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 obviously going to be a huge cost if it looks like you know, the war the war does last for a long time. All the government I mean the government has announced an eight billion zloty fund to help deal with some of these costs, and it's said that it'll give every family that takes in refugees will get one thousand two hundred zloty a month up to a maximum of two months, and every refugee will get three hundred zloty. But those are, you know, in comparison with the overall cost of taking in a family of refugees, those are, those are quite small amounts of money. And clearly, I don't think anyone thinks this crisis is going to be over in, in, in two months. That's the FT's James Schotter in Warsaw. Thanks, James. Thanks very much. U.S. inflation soared yet again last month. The U.S. released its monthly consumer price index report yesterday. It showed an almost 8% year-on-year rise in February. So what will central banks do in response, and how are markets reacting to all this? To help answer those questions, I'm joined by the FT's markets editor, Katie Martin. Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So first off, Katie, can you put into perspective the CPI report we're talking about? What are the goods that we're looking at, and how does this mesh with expectations? So it was a it was a really punchy number, but the market reaction was not actually particularly pronounced because the market pretty much knew it was coming. It's nonetheless super interesting because all of these numbers are gathered before the Ukraine invasion. So we since then, of course, we've seen oil go absolutely gaga. We've seen things like nickel prices go through the roof. All of the commodities that Russia and Ukraine exports, including wheat, so. 7.9%, good chance that's still not the high in, in US inflation, which is extraordinary. And, you know, we've got the Federal Reserve meeting coming up and they're going to have to raise interest rates into this, you know, war in Europe or no war in Europe. They don't really have the choice of just sitting back. So, yeah, I, I do actually want to talk to you about that because uh, last week, Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve sat before U.S. Congress and said, I back a quarter point rate rise. Does that hold true? Are we are we looking at more modest, little bite-sized rate rises rather than the whole shebang all at once? Yeah, we're probably looking at more kind of a series of quarter point raises rather than a kind of gangbusters um, half percentage point raise anytime soon. But they're just treading an incredibly difficult line because there's every risk that this huge rise in inflation could start to push down on on the economy, basically. And then, you know, eventually they're going to find themselves raising interest rates into a slowing economy, which is not a nice place to be for the Fed or any other central bank. So it's incredibly difficult, but no sensible central bank can look at, you know, nearly 8% inflation and say, well, there's uncertainty, so we better, you know, be cautious. They're just going to have to be brave. So in terms of central banks, the European Central Bank met yesterday. What exactly did they say and how does that mesh with um, what's been going on with the circumstances surrounding Ukraine and, and Russia? So the the European Central Bank cut its growth forecast, but it raised its inflation forecast. They obviously are keenly aware of what's going on in Ukraine. Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, described as the war as a watershed moment for, for Europe, but also said that the central bank will do whatever is needed to pursue price stability. The central bank will be scaling back its bond buying program. Net purchases look on track to stop in the in the third quarter 
of this year and we might still get that rarest of things, a European rate rise. And it's interesting because when the war first broke out, one of the market's first and most kind of violent reactions was to say, yeah, there's no way central banks are going to hike into this. And actually, that's proven to be the wrong take because central banks are saying, no, we're going to stick to the course. We're not going to allow ourselves to get blown off course by Vladimir Putin. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.